Okay, Tim Davies, welcome back to Fast Chip Performance then. And on this podcast, what we're going to do is clear out some emails. There's some interesting stuff that's come in. Can't tell you how long it's going to be. Uh, hopefully not too long, really. Uh, I've got quite a bit that's going on. I am trying to answer a lot of emails right now, but some of these ones uh, I know can benefit everyone. There's no point me just replying to someone's email and no one else getting the benefit from it. Okay, And if you don't like that, um, I'm sorry. But uh, if you write me some interesting emails like the ones I've got here, Everyone deserves to hear the answers to some of these. Now, rules about me going through emails in the public domain. No names will come out on this. Uh, No schools, no job uh, locations, nothing like that's going to happen, all right? So if you do write to me, you haven't got to tell me that you don't want to go on this kind of thing or anything. It's it's all about just getting good information out, not about um, embarrassing anyone. I don't even know why we think that would be the case. Right. My man cave set up for today then, I have got um, a big screen on the left-hand side, which I've got some emails on, and my right screen is uh, what I'm using on an audio recording program. I'm actually using Audacity at the moment. It's just simple for me to, uh, whilst I'm working away, to get that stuff done. Uh, because I'm in and out of Cranwell all, um, well, all month, really. I'm working Prefect and Phenom, bringing these jets into service at the moment. Uh, yes, I do call everything a jet. If we talk about helicopters, I will still call it a jet because I have not got the time or capacity to call them by their proper names. Couldn't care less. They're all jets. Right. And uh, at some point, we can talk about that later if you want. But I really want to get through some emails. So let's have a look. What are we going to look at today then? I think we've got about five or six emails. And the major points that we're going to discuss um, are going to be about uh, how to get other people to support a decision you're making, which is quite an interesting one, actually about a guy who is uh, maybe looking at changing his um, entry from one service to another. He wants to know, you know, how do I get buy-in from the family? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, perceived racial issues within the service. So we're going to talk about a guy who is not of a typical, um, um, say, British ethnicity, which would be, what, Western European, I guess. And he's looking to join the military. He's got some uh, let's just say some uh, some ideas about what it might be like. And he's asked me if this is true. We're going to talk about that, really. That's quite an interesting one. This chap here is um, from Canada. He's asking me some stuff, really, about um, aptitude tests, that kind of stuff, which, of course, I did 20 years ago. But there's some other stuff in here we're going to talk about. And what is it, really, he's asking? He's, he's pretty much going on about um, joining the service out there and uh, what he needs to do to prepare for that. We can talk about that. That'd be quite an interesting one to talk about. One down here. What is this guy talking about here? He is saying, um, this might be like, uh, how do I increase my chances of getting in type thing? So let's talk about that, shall we? Let's talk about that. And then I think we've got one down here as well. I'm scrolling all the way down. There we go. Because I do answer quite a lot of these. Obviously, these are the ones that I thought I'd save up to uh, just kind of make it um, for everyone. So this guy here, he's talking about some problems that he had in a medical sense. We'll go into some of that. I've given him some advice here. And one of the interesting ones about this one, actually, and I haven't seen this before, so I thought I would discuss it with you all. He asks um, about, you know, is he going to get bored? Is he going to get bored in the service? Um, he's asked me about the, the lifestyle and stuff. So, yeah, definitely. That would be quite an interesting one. Definitely. And I know a lot of people out there going, what do you mean you're going to get bored? You'll be flying jets all day. He's actually got a really valid question. It's a really nuanced one. I really like the fact that people have written to me with that... Um, I've actually thought about the question they're going to ask. That's great. And then let's probably do one more down here. Yeah, probably one more. And this guy here is talking about the difference between commercial or corporate 
and uh, military leadership. And of course, we could talk about this forever. So really, we're just going to talk about a few of those emails. um, And yeah, why not? Let's just jump straight in with the first one. So this email then really, and I will read, I'll read parts of these emails. Why not? It sounds pretty good. We can obviously all benefit from this. Um, This email really, he's talking about developing a couple of uh, soft social skills that he thinks are necessary. And he thinks he might need these in the future. Now, He's obviously at the stage in life where he's looking to join the military, and that's fine. I get quite a bit of this. Uh, And what he's saying is that he may have, like, ambition to be a particular thing, which I think here he's saying he always wanted to be a pilot. Um, And then maybe in the medical, there was something that was found out, and it means that he may decide to change his application to something else, uh, like an army officer or a Royal Marines officer or something like that. Now, he's obviously had a lot of support from his family, in the past with the application for pilot. And what he's thinking is that he probably doesn't have the support from the family to say maybe to go to Sandhurst um, or Limpson or, or Dartmouth as a, as a naval officer, say a surface uh, warfare officer or something like that. He's, his family are, 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 against, are against him doing anything other than flying, which is quite an interesting one for me to, uh, to have a look at. So that's the first question he's asked. And then the second one, um, well, we're going to the second one in a second. Let's let's have a because it's kind of related. So the first one, then, really, it says he's saying, "How do you bring people around to supporting you when you make a decision um, that's in your own interest, but one that they do not necessarily agree with?" Now, I know you're all listening out there, and I know that you've got the answers already because I know that you jumped onto part of that sentence and you've just worked it straight out. And the part of the sentence you jumped on because you're all warriors and you've all dissected it. Uh, is this bit, of course. It says, um, how do you bring people around to supporting you when you make a decision in your own interest that they do not agree with? All right? Have a think about that. So you're making a decision, that's in your own interest, that other people do not agree with. Now, what am I? I'm 43 years old. If someone doesn't agree with the decision I make, what do you think I do about it? Do you think I care? How much do you think I care? Uh, obviously, I don't care too much, right? Because it's my decision, okay? However, there are some other people in your lives and obviously they are involved. If you have people in, in your own relationships, and of course you are in relationships with your parents and everything else, they are involved with your life. So it does, you do have to accommodate uh, them. And of course, it's much better if you are able to get them on side than it is to say, it's my life, whatever. This is what we do when we're petulant teenagers and we throw things around the house and we storm out and we do our own thing, don't we? And the parents don't speak to us for six months. That's not in our interest, but um, he's making a decision and other people don't agree with his decision. So how does he get them? How does he get the buy-in is what he's asking. How does he get the buy-in from other people? And of course, uh, what he's saying is he's always wanted to be a pilot and he's thinking now maybe he has to change his application to do something else. From what I'm reading into this, it does seem to me that maybe his... um, and. It's not that the email really goes into much more detail about why they're not buying into it, but just because I've obviously done a deep dive on this and I've just analyzed it to death, um, it does say, if close family friends were totally against the principle of this idea, how could I bring them around to at least accepting, if not supporting it, rather than him just running off and um, then giving him the cold shoulder? So for me, it sounds like there's something in the family there where they don't mind him flying airplanes, but they do mind him 
maybe uh, being a troop commander, whatever, in the army or something like that. So really, this is quite interesting because I wouldn't have a student, I wouldn't carry on a student through flying training if uh, I couldn't put him in a teeth arm on the ground as well. Um, it, it makes, it, it brings, what am I trying to say here? So let's not try and mistake, let's not make a mistake of thinking that people who fly airplanes in the military um, don't kill people because they do. That's exactly what they do. Whether you're a helicopter, I get this a lot with people saying, you know, I, I'm in jet training. I'm getting towards the end of jet training. I don't think I want to kill people. Oh, I say I get that a lot. I don't get it a lot. We get it sometimes. And they say, but you know what? I think I'll be all right with doing a multi-engine job or a helicopter job. I want to be a rotary pilot. Now, if you say that and you're in jet training, you're probably likely to lose a job, all right? Because these are the sort of things that you should have thought about before you even joined the military. You don't get a choice of how you deliver air power to the battlefield. All right. If you're good enough to fly jets, we're going to take you and we're going to get you to fly jets. If you're good enough to fly helicopters, we're going to take you and we're going to get you to fly helicopters. Same for multi-engine. There is a talented skill set that is applicable to each one of these platforms. Now, your choice is taken into account, but don't, don't believe for a second that any one of those is not delivering effective air power. And what I mean by delivering effective air power, down the back of these tra- transport aircraft are all the munitions that you have to go and drop on the enemy. In the back of your helicopters are the soldiers that you're going to go and deliver in the battlefield. They're going to go and engage and close with the enemy. So you don't get a choice, really, of, of necessarily how you think that you might deliver that, air, that, that force, that force projection. It's, it's really um, it's going to be the same thing. So if his family were against the principle of him maybe being a soldier on the ground, but they were happy for him to be in an airplane, then that would, that would affect us and that would stop us training him. It wouldn't obviously if the fa- if it was the family I couldn't care less. But if for some reason in his mind that was an issue, we'd probably have to um, stop him flying. If it's the family, yeah, couldn't care less. It's not about the family; it's about him. However, we want him to be happy in what he's doing, and so we need to make sure that um, he's able to do that. So, what would we do in this case? Um, yeah, he just has to pretty much persuade the family that uh, it doesn't matter which arm of the military he joins. The military is there for a reason; it's to protect the sovereign UK. And it doesn't matter whether you're carrying a rifle into the battlefield or whether you're flying a transport aircraft with troops down the back. That's exactly what you're doing. So let's be responsible about it. Um, and let's, um, let's obviously understand as well that really the engagement he has with his family is, is what's going to make him happy when he steps through the door at, uh, what, Limston, Dartmouth, uh, Cranwell or Sandhurst. He needs that family support. And if the family aren't giving him that support, it's going to be quite difficult for him um, to be able to survive that initial six, nine, 12 months, whatever it's going to be. So you do need that support at home. So it's a big conversation he has to have. That conversation would probably start out along the lines of, as I've just said, look, it doesn't matter what I'm doing in the military or everything happens in the, in the same way. We're all delivering um, power to the battlefield. So that's the kind of conversation I'd have. The second question he puts out here really he says, how can you display to someone that a certain aspect of your character has changed? Um, and he says, let's say that I passed uh, a potential officer's course or something like that. But the report said that uh, because he was a young guy and he was, he said he was somewhat immature and needed to get maybe a, um, a better grasp of consequences or whatever it says here. Um, maybe he was just quite an outgoing character. He's saying, how can I show them the second time that I've matured in order to not let this previous support affect his score? Really interesting one, actually, because this is exactly how I was. So uh, 
I was very um, cavalier is the word, overly familiar, I think, when I was a very young guy. And this is to do with a lot of the, the, the part of the brains that have in the prefrontal cortex or it hasn't developed enough really for you to uh, understand consequences as such. And this is why, of course, we can send young people to war and then why they're happy to go to war because they don't understand how their life will change um, when they have three limbs, if that is the case, or or if they're killed, they don't really think these things through until the age of about 25. I'm not saying it's right, by the way. I'm just saying go and do some reading on it and you'll find that's exactly why um, we send uh, those who are under 25 into conflict, of course, because we can. You are happy to go and do that. Uh, and that is the truth. So if we have a think about this, then how can he show, he's obviously had an experience at um, his previous sort of induction or his, his acquaint course, and he just wants to prove that actually he has matured. When it happened to me, uh, I went out and they said I didn't have enough teamwork. So I went out and I, I joined a rugby club and I played in the fourth or third and then eventually I think the second team uh, to prove that I had teamwork. What else did I do? I went and ran some charities. I worked for some charities, delivering homelessy stuff and everything, soup and all that kind of stuff. I did that and um, I, I did a bit more further education. I did some reading and stuff and took a night course. So in computer programming to show that I was still developing and that's what I did. And I went back there and I also... Um, here's one of the things that's quite important as well. I acknowledged the fact. The thing about acknowledging something is that you steal someone's thunder from them straight away. If you're going to have an argument with someone and you know that, say, your husband or your wife is going to say something like, you never listen to me. If The first thing you say to them is, look, I know you think that I don't listen to you, but I do. Then you've stolen that from them. They, they can't hit you with that again. So when you go back to like um, Sandhurst or whatever it might be, or OAS here at Cranwell, if you've had a previous report from them that has highlighted a part of your personality that they think is is um, maybe could do with improving, acknowledge that. You know, when they say, "So what have you learned since the last um, time we saw you?" You can say, "Look, I know that uh, the last time I was here, maybe I was a bit uh, immature, um, so I need to do some growing." So what I've done is I've gone away and I've done X, Y, and Z. And I think now that I've, uh, I've developed as a person. So take that from them. Use that. Use that report. Go away. Uh, have a think about it. Do something about it. They want to show that you, you're, you're applying yourself, uh, which, is, of course, is, is one of the key skills of being um, in the military, that we can do that. Cool. So that's, that's what I would say to this guy. And hopefully I haven't got to write him an email back now because I've answered this on this, which is, um, which is great. Moving down then into another one. This is a very interesting one, actually. This is a guy who doesn't actually say what his um, ethnicity is, but he does have uh, a question, really, about... Um, let's have a read uh, about... Yeah, I don't mention names. So oh, I'm reading out my answer here. I hate this question yeah. What he is basically saying is that he's coming up uh, to um, end availables and he would like to go into the military. And he doesn't see any reason why he shouldn't go in. He's done a lot of reading. Um, he's, he thinks it's for him. And he's saying, well, if I didn't apply, then I'd probably regret it. So I'm going to put an application in. Um, although he's saying his parents won't want him to apply. And this is quite similar to the first question that we, we talked of there, really. And he says um, he's not a white guy. He's uh, the first generation of his family that's um, applied to join the British military. So he's quite a proud guy. He's, he really thinks this is going to be a great thing. Uh, and I think he's getting some pressure from the family again because he wants to be part of something big, which is, this is great as well when he says this. He realizes that his application to the military is not about him, all right? It's not an individual thing. He's saying he wants to be part of something that is big. 
and he's saying um, he wants to do everything he can to achieve that and to um, uh, to, to make it special. You know, to, to get into the military and to help it be a better place. This is a great thing to say in your interview: is to tell them that it's not about you. You understand sacrifice. You want to get into the military because you want to make it a better place. Always leave things better for you being there in everything you do in life. By the way. My, if my computer just beat there, it's because I've got everything open right now, guys. I do apologize for that. Um, emails and everything. So what he's, he's saying here, really, he's talking about the social attitudes of the military. And he's saying that he's got the impression that they can be a bit outdated. Um, and it's a very traditional or conservative environment. He's spoken to um, another pilot, and she's a woman. And she said that um, as a woman, she kind of has to expect a bit of banter uh, in close teams and that it's normal. Uh, let's have a look what else he's saying here, which isn't uh, necessarily true, by the way. we talk about a bit about that. And he's saying, because of his race and his background, um, does this mean that he can never really feel part of a team? Which, when I read this, I was, I was like, crikey, okay. People still feel this way, do they? Um, really interesting. He's saying every official t- source tells him that it's not a problem. Um, but he's asking me, of course, because I'm going to lay it down. Cleopatra coming at you, and uh, I'm not going to tell you anything that isn't. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you everything that's true. Right, so a bit of a general question. He acknowledges that. So basically, what's this guy saying? This guy is saying that he's not a Western European. He is saying that he's, his race is somewhere else, and uh, he's been told by um, the Air Force that it's not an issue, um, but you know, everyone else says that it is, and that he can never be part of a team. He's going to get a, a nickname, and, and all honesty, guys, I... I've never seen this. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I've been in for 20 years and I've never seen. And I don't know why. It's really interesting, actually. I've been thinking about this. I even chatted to my um, one of my guys about it. And I was like, have you ever seen this? I've just never seen it. It would be so unpalatable to ever talk to someone in a derogatory manner because of their race. We employ a lot of intelligent people. That makes a lot of sense. We all know that. Um, you wouldn't be joining the military if you didn't have a certain amount of intellect. But to put someone down because of the color of their skin or, or the fact that they're a girl, not a boy, it doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense in my mind. Um, it, it just doesn't. In fact, and I did think about this, and I wrote back to him. I wrote back on his email. I just thought I'd share some stuff from my reply to him. And I said to him, um, if people were to criticize someone because they spoke with an accent or came from another country, and it makes a, a mockery of the person saying it themselves. It shows that they're ignorant and prejudiced, and that's not the people that we tend to employ in the UK military. Uh, it really isn't. Now, I'm not even going to say in other ranks, because I know other ranks. I work with other ranks every day, and it, that does not happen. You know, you want to go deep into this, and you want to get down, you want to say, what about if you know, you're in the battlefield, whatever, and this is, uh, you know, I get that. Maybe that happens when people are angry with each other and under the stress of war but i've never seen people have an issue or banter each other over their their race um or their sex uh and sometimes what happens and i wrote an essay about this a long time ago um it was about women crying in debris really and you can find it on the website i think it was about vertical ambition or the end of vertical ambition and and why women don't want to climb up so much as men and there's a lot of reasons, really, really complicated. But I got a phone call. I got an email, sorry, from a, a psychologist in Australia, a very clever woman. And she was saying to me, um, you, it is there. But you just don't realize you don't see it. It's that the women themselves have adapted into the male culture. 
it gets even deeper than that, and I don't want to go into it too much on this podcast, but it's worth reading the uh, the essay if you want to have a um, have a think about how how sex plays into the military. And remember, the military is fourteen percent women, and we've just opened up every single part of the Royal Air Force. Sorry, the the, the Royal Air Force is fourteen percent women. We've opened up every single part of the Royal Air Force to women um, over this last week, and we're the first force to do that. Which means if you're strong enough to get into the regiment flight and you want to go and run around with guns, crack on. I haven't got an issue with that. You want to live in ditches and stuff. Anyway, those guys are heroes. So um, you want to be part of that. You're joining a pretty top bunch of guys. Um, And soon to be guys and girls, of course, because that's what we're doing. So really what I've said, I've listened to people here in in my response to this guy about who I've flown with in operational theatres and who I've had in the back of my jet and who I've, you know, flown with in, in uh, in the Hawk all different races, all different nationalities, and some of them I can't talk about um, only because inter- international defence training and if we start talking about countries that we you know, it's fine. I, I can talk about most of them. But um, in fact, I do list in this argument here uh, that there was one episode when I was in training, and we're going back now 15 years, and there was a, an Irish guy, and he was an Irish, I think he was an Irish Protestant, and he, he had an issue with, like a Catholic on the course, if you can believe it. And that's the only time. And that guy was Irish as well. And they were arguing. And that's the only time I've ever seen anything like that being brought up. But what I've said to him here, basically, is the services are in effect colorblind. All right. Because at night, at low level on the West Coast of Scotland, in a tornado GL4, you and I, we're going to die in exactly the same way. Um, I don't care what color your skin is. I care how good you are. That's that's what's going to get me angry at you if, if you're not very good, you know, and you're not applying yourself to get better. That's when I'm going to get a bit like, come on, let's get some, let's hit the books, let's get some work done. Um, joining the military because you're of a different, you come from a different country, different ethnicity, and don't fear that, embrace that. You know, we, we are a diverse culture. So that's what I wrote back to him. Um, yeah, that's all it is. I said, here, I said here, you are the only limitation to your own success. His mindset is limiting his success. This is quite common. We know this. Um, And I've said here, I feel that you may struggle if you feel that your colour or ethnicity will be an issue when you join. All right. I think we put that one to bed. doesn't matter uh, where you come from. Join the military. It's a good place to be. Right. This chap here is talking about oh yeah okay no it's fine i did answer this guy yeah so this is about uh, helping out a guy i get a lot of um, fathers write to me about their sons and daughters joining i always try and answer them back because um, obviously they're very concerned this is a great guy that wrote to me from uh, canada and his son had i think let's have a look he's gonna try and get into the canadian armed forces these the canadians are low on people they're um, asking a lot of people to come back my brother used to fly for the canadians uh, he was a Hercules pilot, um, C-130Js. He left about a year and a bit ago, and they've asked him to come back. Obviously, they are desperate if they're asking him to come back, but that's fair enough. Right, uh, let's have a look. So he's doing very well in school, and uh, he's saying, you know, how can we uh, how can we help him get into the services? It's what I write back to him then. Yeah, so a lot of people write to me, and they say, how can I practice the aptitude tests? Um, how can I get better at doing aptitude tests? Now, Anyone who's done the aptitude test already and probably part, uh, probably failed them because they're quite hard at the moment. Um, they're the same ones in Canada as they are in the UK, apparently. And I haven't practiced these at all, guys. I've actually seen them. My, my kid brother, again, the guy I just spoke about, was showing me some stuff that um, they do for like British Airways or something. And some of them are ninja hard. I mean, seriously, I had to 
you know, I had to, um, I had to actually concentrate a little bit to do some of them. And I don't normally have to concentrate to do that stuff because obviously I'm a hero, right? Fact. Just kidding. But they were really hard. So what I've said to this guy here, um, I point him to a website and I point a lot of guys to this website because it stops me having to regenerate their content. It's called The Student Rooms. If you search for The Student Rooms and then OASC, there's a conversation ongoing there uh, about the aptitude test, about you know passing OASC and what the interviews, everything else. And it's a good place to go really just to get some kind of information if you can. Um, let's have a look. What else am I saying here? And there's obviously I did a, an article about maths on my, one of my podcasts about how we approximate and refine. That might be worth uh, having a look at as well. So how can you prepare for the aircrew selection process? Yeah, just hit Google, learn everything you can, um, really get ahead of the game. And when I talk about aptitude tests as well, people say you can't improve your aptitude score. And I disagree with that. I think you can. I think you can improve it maybe 10, and 15, 10 to 15%. I wouldn't say you could really improve it much more than that. So what are we looking at? I, I don't even know what the scores are. I think it's out of 130 something, but I'm not even going to do that. So, okay, 130, I don't know. Say, say you got like, um, uh, what are we even doing there? I don't even know. Let's pretend it's out of 100 and you got like 70%. Say the pass mark was like 80% or something, all right? So um, let's say you then went away and you did loads of work and you did, you found someone to um, who did some aptitude tests online. You practiced them like every day religiously. And obviously you gave yourself a couple of days a week break because your mind has to develop your, your thoughts and everything and has to prepare itself. And then when you start learning, maybe you end up getting about 10 or 15% more. It's not a great deal when you think about it, but it might be enough if you only just failed them to nudge yourself over that score. Um, I personally, I've done a bit of research into this and I don't think that, I don't see people going away and doing aptitude test practicing and getting like a 50% increase in their score. I don't see it. I see 15%, like one five max, but that's just me. That's just me. If you've done nothing, of course, if you've rocked it like a, like a, like a, a warrior and you've gone in there and you've gone, I've done nothing. I'm just going to just gash these tests and you've come out with a low score. Then yeah, you know, as you mature a little bit and you do some work towards them, you may find that you can increase that a lot more. But if you've done a load of work and you've gone and got some, um, a score, then really probably doing some more work, 10, 15% max, where you're going to get. That's what I spoke to the guy. Anyway, I think we've got the last two kind of questions down here, really. Sipping wrappers up in 30 minutes. This guy's saying, uh, dear Tim, you're awesome, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I might have put that bit in myself. Okay, yeah, I, I wrote back to this guy. He's obviously young, and I really want to get this. We mentioned it a little bit earlier as well. And the reason that I wrote back to this guy, and I, I said, um, I said, look, maybe you need a, a slight shift in your attitude uh, in a good way. And the reason I wrote that, and I'm probably being a little bit harsh to him, and I don't mean it like this, because he's written to me and he said, I'm very keen. I want to be a, a Royal Air Force pilot. Um, I'm interested in how to increase my chances on getting what I've wanted for such a long time. Now, I understand what he's saying there. What he's, I, I know what he's saying, what I've wanted. And I get that. It's, some guy comes to me, I, I get this often, and a guy will say, I really want to fly fast jets. That's all I want to do. And of course, I say to him, it's like, when was the last time you ever flew a fast jet? You know? And I don't want to come across as mean here. Being a fast jet pilot is quite a violent existence. And, and your, time, your life is taken up with study. Um, it's pretty continuous. You know, you go from a squadron to a squadron. Every three years, you start either a new type of jet or you go from flying training into a weapons instructor role or you go into a frontline combat role. 
it's you've got to keep reading you've got to you know hit the books um you've got to keep your fitness up and you can't just eat and drink what you want i mean well you can in general but you've got to keep within a certain weight and everything and you have a medical every year so all i'm saying is when you say i really want to fly a fast jet it's like me now saying i really want to be a championship footballer and i know nothing about that i mean i know nothing you know i, I really don't know very much about what being a championship footballer is like i just see him run around the pitch and I see him roll around with some fine women and some Rolexes on their wrists. And I'm like, yeah, that's all good. I want to do that. But I don't really know the ins and outs of it. I'm sure it's a pretty rough existence, really, with all that cash and all those Bentleys. However, all I'm saying is, um, have a think about it. All right. So this guy's saying, you know, what I've wanted for such a long time. And I went back to him and just say, look, have a think about the attitude. All right. I know it's what you want. I fully get that. Um, but you need to kind of think about how you address that in the context of the military structure. But the military is a big thing. It really doesn't care what you want. It just doesn't. It, it doesn't have to. It's got no interest in you, really. It wants to keep you alive because that means you can hold the weapon longer. But apart from that, it doesn't really care too much about you. Know, I've, I've written about this before. But it's a transactional relationship. Recognize that for what it is. What you put into it, you'll get out of again. And all I'm saying to him is think about when you go to your interviews or whatever, you know, how can I help? them to be better as a fighting force you know what can i do to make the service better it's not about you as an individual it's about you as part of a team okay very very important no one cares about you as an individual they care about you as part of a team what you can bring to that team how you can increase the fighting effectiveness of that team you need to be a team player if you're not a team player already get out there and do some team stuff just so you can show that you have worked as a team All right. Really important. So I kind of jumped on him a little bit and I feel bad about that. And I wrote to him and said, hey, I'm kind of sorry. I just want to make sure you understand um, if you walk into your interviews and you talk about yourself the whole time, uh, they're not going to like that. Okay, but we understand that. We've spoken about this before. Scrolling down. Let's see this one here. Is this the last one? I think it needs to be the last one. There's one and a half and then we're going to go. Okay, wrap it up around about it's about 30 minutes now. This guy's saying, oh, this is an interesting one, actually. Yeah. So his, his question really um, he has a question about being bored within the service. And I, you know, it's very easy, isn't it? And I know you're in your car driving somewhere now because I speak to a lot of people who say that they like the podcast because they listen to me as they drive. And you'll be raging at your steering wheel. What do you mean you'll be bored? You know, all I can think about is flying these airplanes or, or, or being in the regiment or being a medic or whatever it might be or driving a submarine. How could you be bored by doing that? But actually, he brings a really relevant point, And I think it needs discussion now. Because if we don't discuss it now, you will end up in the service. You will waste 12 years of your life. And you'll go, why do I do this? Okay, so what he's saying, fair enough to the guy. He's saying, um, if he becomes a pilot and he's doing daily sorties in and around the UK, will he get bored with living on an RF base and eating on the base and working on one? Because he might be based away from friends and family. And does his social life get smaller and smaller? Um, he says right now the thought of living in a disciplined military environment with a rank structure is appealing but um, and kind of an enjoyable way of looking at it he says he kind of likes the idea but does the RAF give their personnel enough time off from work to do other activities and can he commute home wherever home might be now I really like that so uh, I said here let me have a look because I did write back yeah here we go I said I like this it's a really mature question he's asking here and i wish a lot more people would kind of ask that because you know i could go and be and i could use some names of some models here you guys would need you know cindy crawford's massage you'd be like who the hell's cindy crawford right yeah i'm 43 they're gonna look her up but i could go and let's pick someone else so i could go and be anna kendrick's um chief coffee maker or whatever and uh you know after maybe 
maybe after 60 years of doing that, I might get a little bit bored. But all I'm saying is, you know, still, I could probably even get bored being Anna Kendrick's um, chief coffee maker. So one of those things I'm sure, and I know because I am a bit bored of flying fast jets. I've done it for 20 years now. I know many other guys who have flown jets and, and I know astronauts that don't want to go into space again. Um, it's just the fact you want another challenge. And I guess that's what boredom is really is it's you've, you've done it. You want to do something else. And he's saying, if he's on a base, is that going to happen? So what I've said here really to him is um, it's going to be so novel. I mean, when he gets in there, there's so many things happening. He's not going to be bored right away. I don't know any of my students that are bored well, saying that, of course, um, uh, that they've been at Valley a while. So sometimes when we hold people over, they're not overly enamored with being at Valley because Valley's a small island and there's not much going on. And, uh, you know, I just drive 80 miles to get a cup of tea sometimes at Chester because it just gets me out of North Wales. It normally rains. So, yes, when you're on your frontline station, the reason that service moves everyone around every three years it's because it doesn't want to get people. It doesn't want people to get stale. It wants people to um, be enthused and to keep them motivated. So it moves them around every three years. Now I've been at Valley for ten because I double toured with an Afghan tour in the middle. So because of that, I, I went to Afghan. I put my hand up and said, "Can I go to um, theatre, please, the front line?" Uh, because I'm, I'm bored. I'm bored of flying Hawk T ones on two eight squadron. Uh, I want to do something else. And the service went, "Well, why don't you go to war?" And I was like, "Do it. That's what I signed up for." All right. Never shy away from that conflict. That's not what we're about. Okay, We're there to bring it. Get out there. Um, go and help your brothers out on the front line. So I went out to theatre. Six months worked with the US Army. Uh, it wasn't an awesome time. In fact, that was the first time my life started falling apart, to be honest with you, uh, as my father died and some other stuff happened in 2011. And I've spoken about that for the next five years and I, in an essay about when good pilots go bad. But what I'm saying is, uh, I wasn't necessarily bored. It, it kept me motivated to continue within the service and to better myself. So uh, you won't get bored. You really won't. Um, eating on an RF base, uh, working on one. He says here, if you, you know, what's a social life? A smaller social life. I'm like, I'm guaranteeing your social life would probably improve in ways you didn't even imagine by joining the military. You think you've got a good social life now? And I'm sure you have. I'm sure it's awesome. Um, you haven't taken a squadron to Vegas yet. All right, you just have not done that. And you know you haven't taken your, your squadron down to tour in France or whatever. You haven't, you know, the whole. It's 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 hard to describe, but it's kind of like forced fun. It's like you are going to have fun. You're here, have fun, and it's um it's awesome. And that's how you bond, and that's why we do it. That's what adventure training is about. So your social life will probably get better in a way that you've never even thought about. Um, it is a disciplined military environment. Yeah, I can't have long hair or anything, and, and there is a rank structure, but you know. I think we're kind of cool with that. And remember, you're with people that are all thinking the same way. You're all there to do a professional job, to have a great time, and to uh, fly and, and to work in some of the with some of the best people that you're ever going to find in such a great team atmosphere. It really is awesome. And anyone that works in the police service or the fire service or the NHS or the public sector or even some great companies that are doing some great work and innovation um, will tell you exactly the same thing. You know, it's great being part of a team that's motivated and focused and going the same way. And we can talk about self-determination theory and everything else if you want to get into that at some point about motivation in the workplace, about competency, um, autonomy and relevance and relatedness if you want. But we don't need to go into that because that's a whole other thing. And really, that's not something that we want to go into. So can you commute home? Yes, you can. I was based at Lossiemouth. Did I commute home to Oxford? Yes, I did. Was it a nightmare? Yes, it was. All right, last question then. Because you've got a flat of Aberdeen. And you've got to drive to Aberdeen and the boss would always have like shareholders and you want a meeting at like six o'clock on a Friday. And they'd be like, boss, my airplane leaves at six. Right, anyway, 
Still keeping contact with him today. What's this last one about here? This guy here, uh, this is the last one, and then I'm going to let you guys go. He talks about um, the difference between corporate and military leadership. I have a web page um, I'm going to bring up right now, and we're going to talk this through because I think it's relevant. Because if you think about what shareholders um, do with a company, in fact, let's bing, bing, brilliant. That's obviously coming through. I do apologize for that. If you think about a company itself and what a company is supposed to do, um, some, some CEOs of companies will tell you uh, that their responsibility or their obligation is to maximize their returns for their shareholders. Um, it also says that they have to adopt tax avoidance measures, um, not because they have to, but because, um, sorry, not because they, they kind of want to, but they kind of have to, to maximize those returns for their shareholders. And if you want to go back in the 2006, I believe it, under the Companies Act, you know, that's, uh, pretty much the director uh, of a British company was required to promote the success of the business for the benefits of, it, of its shareholders. That was a thing. Now, that isn't a thing anymore. Um, that's kind of changed a little bit now. Uh, there's a lot more to it. And so really, what we're looking at here, so when he's talking about, this guy's talking about military leadership, can it be reconciled with corporate leadership, where a military leadership is... Um, is very different. A military leadership is supposed to be inspirational. It's supposed to have honor, courage, selflessness, um, resilience, robustness, strength, humility, altruism, all these kind of things because failure results in life loss. Now, is that the same with a corporate? I work with corporate companies, obviously all over the, all over the place. I do see a different kind of leadership in those companies. But then again, you know, I'm not a shareholder of those companies, um, fortunately in some cases. But all I'm saying is that they have their own way of doing things and they have to make sure that they survive as a company. So a lot of what they have to do commercially is to make sure they still exist. Okay. And, and I, you know, no one's going to challenge that in the military. We fully understand that we don't actually produce anything in the military as such. And these companies do. So they need to go out there and they need to generate revenue. Um, They need to bring uh, money in, in order for them to pay their staff, to pay their bills, to pay other companies. So what he's saying here is, um, Corporate leadership is very different um, to military leadership. And when this guy's gone and worked from the military and he's gone into uh, into the corporate world, he's found that a little bit difficult to sort of understand. Basically, uh, and he's, he's saying, you know, I, I want to grab some of the warrior coaching with me. I, I do warrior coaching for selective individuals. Uh, if I can, if I can, I only have uh, three people a month ever. I never go over that. Um, and if I can fit you in, by all means, I will. But, you know, I run a warrior coaching program. I keep it a bit low key because uh, I'm still in the service. and I'm giving you the information that we give to all the, uh, the fast jet students that we're putting through phase four flying training. This guy's saying he wants a bit of that. I'm saying, fine, let's chat it through because it may not be what you want. A lot of people that come to me for warrior coaching may do better with um, saying psychotherapist or someone else. That's maybe they can bounce some ideas off. What I want is um, some tangible results from the coaching. And a lot of people don't necessarily want to give that. Uh, want to have that kind of sacrifice so he's saying he does and what he's saying here is um, he really wants to talk through these these traits and how he can carry these traits into business i find that very interesting um can they be reconciled i know a lot of military people that go into uh corporate world of course and a lot of companies such as let's bring up some right now let's bring inspire um ba systems lockheed martin uh sent flight training these companies are full of military people uh, that have transitioned across Ascent Flight Trainings is uh, responsible for the United Kingdom military flying training system. I work quite closely with them. Affinity, who deliver the aircraft, again, heavily involved um, with ex-military guys. So it makes my job 
as a requirements manager uh, a lot easier where I can talk to these guys at the same level um, and they understand that if I sacrifice something for them, I'm going to get that sacrifice back from them as well. A lot of the time I will say to them, look, you know, I'm running a risk by telling you this and I'm telling it them because I know that they're going to do the same thing for me and it's going to move us both forwards. And that's the key. So you do find the uh, the military leadership aspects out there in the, uh, the corporate world. You just have to go and find the companies that are willing to display them. What is this last question here? Because I think in all honesty that we're pretty much, um, let's have a look, see where we're running at now. 40 minutes of goodness, guys. By all means, write in if you need a, if you need a question. Oh, yeah, so I'm going to recommend you a book. Um, and I talk about this in the book I'm putting out, which is a bit on pause at the moment because I'm, I'm all over the country trying to bring these jets in. And when I talk about jets, I'm talking about the Phenom and, and the Texan, and I'm also talking about the Prefect. And I'm also talking about the Cheetah, by the way. And I'm also talking about the Hawk T2 because all these things are up in the air about what they're doing. And the King Air as well. That's going through some stuff. So uh, this, I, I say to this guy, he's asking about how does he, um, uh, how does he kind of stop blaming other people uh, for maybe delaying his success, how he sees it. And so what I've talked about here is something called ownership. Ownership, and we could do a whole podcast on this, and I'll try and get someone in to talk about that with you as well, so I'm not just here talking myself. But ownership is where you take responsibility for yourself. Now, when I was going through a bit of a low period of my life, a couple of years back, whatever, still have a kind of few dark days. We all have dark days, right? Um, I have to own that. I have to say this is my responsibility. You know, I have to go away and do something proactive, maybe uh, have some really great food or um, maybe go for a run or something, maybe get out in nature. That's a big thing. And I have to make sure that I am responsible for the way that I'm feeling. I can't blame anyone else. And the great thing is that when you stop blaming other people and you take responsibility for the way you feel or the way you are or the way your grades are at school, or whatever it might be, or the way you are in the company you're at, one of the great things that happens is that you, you become responsible for changing that direction. You take responsibility for it and then you take you drive yourself into a new direction so you are responsible for that change. And that's very important. That's what I'm that's what I'm trying to say to this guy here. And I recommend him a book to read because now this is the Fast Hit Performance Book Club. It's not at all, by the way, guys. Um, get on Amazon. It's a great book. Kindle or whatever you want to do and download it. Uh, it's about some Navy SEALs operating out in Ramadi. Where was I? I was not in Ramadi back in... It's really interesting because the book is all about... Uh, their time in Ramadi and I was in uh, okay I was not in Fallujah is the line to take uh, we were not in to Fallujah now we weren't actually that's actually the law we weren't there but this we were not in Fallujah and exactly the same time these US Navy SEALs were in Ramadi it goes back into the late 2000s read the book uh, two Navy SEALs Leif Babin and um, Jocko Willink and it's called Extreme Ownership all right, extreme ownership. They start off with like a war dip, which is really cool about how those people died and everything. And I know you guys are, um, are all into that because you're just cray cray. And then they talk about uh, how they apply that, sorry about the binging, into business, in it, into business. Um, and that's quite useful. So um, that's really cool. And that's what I try and do on my website, don't I? They're just doing it a whole lot better than me. So he also talks about lack of sleep and I'm like, get over it. He's saying how lack of sleep may have affected his aptitude scores. I'm like, cry me a river, build a bridge, get over it. You know, that's the whole point of it. They know you're going to be tired. Go and speak to a Royal Marine who's just gone through Limston and tell him you're a bit tired because you, you didn't get enough sleep for aptitude tests. Um, see what happens. Right. So um, 
extreme ownership. I think you should be able to order that through my site. In fact, um, I tell you what I might do is put some of that Patreon stuff on my site because this is costing me a fortune. Uh, I say a fortune. I'm leaving the military now. They just slashed my pay. Slashed. When you leave the military on early termination, they do slash a lot of your pay. I think I lost about 20% overnight. And I've still got six months to run it. This is crazy. Um, I'm probably going to starve. Uh, I'm sure I will. So if you guys want to throw me cash, I will make sure that I um, I say thank you for that. So whether you can buy it on my site or not, you probably can't, in fact. Just go to Amazon, download it. Extreme Ownership, um, Leaf Babin, and Jocko Willink. Right, I think that's all I've got for you guys. Um, also, I've got uh, a link here as well. If you want to go to my site and talk, uh, type in self-sabotage or self-sabotage Tim Davies or whatever, and uh, you'll find my essay on how planning um, for failure gives you permission to fail. And I'll, that's a great read. I wrote it, but it's a great read because it tells you how to get the correct mindset. Read that. Get that book. Have a read of it. Write me an email. Tell me how you're getting on because what I really want to get across to you is um, you are responsible for your future. There will be times when bad things happen. If I go back in my life, say to 2011, my father died. I had two friends die in quite a quick succession. Um, it's very easy to say these things happened to me. Therefore, they affected my mental health. You know, My mental health was, was a result of an external influence. And what I'm saying to you now is there are ways I could have reacted to that differently. I could have embraced that. I could have owned what was happening. I could have done something better about it. So um, have a read of that book. And that's exactly what I did. And it really changed the way I thought about um, the way that I do things in the future. Guys, 45 minutes. Okay, you're rocking it. Hopefully you're on a 45-minute car journey. And I'm just uh, uh, talking to you now as you pull into your driveway. That's the ideal. Okay, um, I have been asked to talk about things that are not flying related. Hopefully I've cleared up these emails now. I'm going to obviously tag these uh, these re- these replies to this post and I don't have to write them replies which would be quite nice to me if you do have anything that you really want me to talk about or even if you've seen something in the press or you've seen something out there whatever you're thinking this confuses me then hook me up with an email and I'll try and get one of these out there as well thanks for listening guys Tim Davies Fast Shit Performance